Hello and welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Pauly. Now, does it take faith to be an atheist? Do you have enough faith to be an atheist? Uh, maybe if you're having conversations, you realize that atheists start to use some arguments and they start to pull in things like reasoning and objective morality and truth and things that actually are only possible from a Christian worldview. Well, my guest today on the show, Dr. Frank Turek, he's a dynamic speaker and the author of books like Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, and I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and correct, not politically correct, and legislating morality. Now, Dr. Turek speaks all over the country at churches and college campuses. That's probably uh, where you may have seen him. I know a lot of people watch those videos on YouTube where he is discussing and, and having conversations with college students on college campuses, as well as he's debated atheists like David Silverman and Christopher Hitchens and, and others. And so joining me is Dr. Frank Turek. Frank, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, Ryan. Great being with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And we uh, met for the first time at CIA, your Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. Do you want to say really quick to those listening what that is? Yeah, Cross-Examined Instructor Academy is where we try and train people who have an interest in giving evidence for Christianity on how to do it more effectively and how to answer questions. So it's really sort of a three-day workshop that helps people improve their presentation skills in this world of what we call apologetics, which is giving evidence for Christianity. Yeah, and it was it was a great time. I really enjoyed being there and just also just getting to meet so many uh, incredible apologists uh, like Greg Kokel and uh, Sean McDowell and, and Brett Kunkel and Richard Howe and, and Bobby Conway and others and just a great opportunity. So if you're listening, you want to grow in this area, I strongly encourage that as well. Uh, so Frank, what exactly, I mean, how long have you been doing apologetics and what got you into this? Well, I got into it because I came to faith through evidence. I, I always believed in God, but I didn't know who Jesus was. And a friend of mine said, hey, you need to get Josh McDowell books. So I got evidence that man's a verdict and more than a carpenter. And I said, hey, this is really true. So I came to faith that way. And then I met Norman Geisler back in 1993. And we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina to go to Southern Evangelical Seminary, S-E-S dot E-D-U, and uh, started doing uh, doing uh, presentations with Dr. Geiser, and we wrote a couple of books. One is called Legislating Morality. The other is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And so I came to faith through evidence, and I always was interested in it. That's how I got into it. Oh, perfect. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation because uh, a lot of my listeners know you and have written in questions for you as well as I have some questions. And so we're going to work through some of those things and uh, just be able to learn. And, and I want to encourage others as well as uh, to listen to the Cross-Examine uh, podcast. Uh, it's a great podcast where you discuss some very important uh, issues where you talk about them being evergreen. These are issues that are good at all times and you can kind of keep listening to no matter where the culture goes. Uh, but one thing that you also do that I already mentioned that kind of uh, makes your ministry more unique is you spend a lot of time on college campuses, uh, secular universe, university campuses, making the case for God's existence. How did you get into that? Yeah, I, uh, I got into going to college campuses because we knew that about three out of every four young people who are brought up in the church walk away from the church once they leave the home. And we said, well, we got to do something about that. We have to go to college campuses and also high schools because it's best if you can get them in high school before they even go to college yep. and try and give them reasons why Christianity is true. Because one of the major reasons young people walk away from the church is because they don't have any evidence that it's true. And of course, when they go to college, it's much more leftist, both politically and theologically. 
So they don't really get good reasons to to believe Christianity is true. They get all these reasons to say it isn't true. And so we try and counterweight that by going to college campuses and presenting the evidence. Well, that's perfect. And I'm trying to help out from the high school side and training high schoolers to get there. Yeah, and that's so great. that's kind of the next question then is, is what would a high school students like? What are some of the common challenges facing students when they're heading off to the college campus that that they should be prepared for? Well, just the basic argument for Christianity, and that's what we, we lay out, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And, and you, get, you basically get questions in four areas, the majority of questions. They all begin with the letter E. It helps you remember. You get questions on evil. You know, if there's a good God, why is there evil? You get questions on evolution, as if somehow that disproves God. Even if it's true, it doesn't, but you still get questions on that. You get questions on eternity. Oh, you know, what about those that have never heard? Why would God create people he knew would go to hell? Those kinds of questions. Yeah. And you also get questions on ethics, like, uh, for example, uh, why did God kill the Canaanites? Is God angry in the Old Testament? Uh, what about homosexuality and the LGBTQ issues? Those kinds of questions. So if you can get good at answering questions related to those four E's, evil, evolution, eternity and ethics, you've probably got about 95% of the questions you're going to hear on a college campus. Yeah. And would you say that's the main way that the college campus is hostile towards towards students or especially you know, Christian students is, is just asking lots of questions or just anti uh, going against with the intellectual and, and, and evolution? Or in what ways would you say really is pushing against the, the, the Christian high school student going off into the university? I would say 70 to 80% of the questions I get now are in the ethics category. Morality. They're, they're, it's really a moral question. It's not the elephant in the room is not evidence. M most people aren't interested in evidence. What they're interested in is, is, is God going to tell me what I can and can't do? I don't want that. Yeah, that's why you always I always ask them the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And many times atheists on the college campus will say no, because they're not on a truth quest they're on a happiness quest. And they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. So you can make yourself happy over the short term doing a lot of fun, but ultimately destructive things. But over the long term, it's a disaster. And so we try and show young people why it's true. And we blatantly ask them these direct questions to see really where they're coming from. And uh, I think, oh, sorry. No, no, I was going to say, look, if, if you ask somebody if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And they hesitate or say no. The problem isn't in their head. It's in their heart. And I was going to repeat that question because that is such a fundamental question that I ask my students almost every year uh, mm -hmm. that really helps them think through, why are you doing this? In fact, you know, because I teach at a Christian school and have mixed classrooms, I always ask the Christians, if Christianity were not true, would you stop being a Christian, right? Mm -hmm. Is this is this based on truth or is this just based on how you've grown up and, and what you want to do morally? And as you said, I've had lots of students say, no, I wouldn't. If I started believing in God, I would have to stop doing things I want to do. Uh, yeah, if I, sure. another student said, if I believe in God, uh, then it would change my life and people would look at me differently. And I don't want that. And so, uh, it, it's not always truth. And so what do you do then with the student who says, no, I wouldn't become a Christian, a Christian if it were true. I, I am just following my moral standard that I just want to live the way that I want to live. Well, you just commend them on their honesty <laughs> and, and you, you decommend them if that's a word, or you say, Hey, is that really the right way to live? Think about it. I mean, why would you not believe something that were true? And then you love them and pray for them. And then at some point, if you're a person who can be trusted because you've been in their life for a while, when some difficulty comes out, 
or comes about in their lives, they're probably going to call you. They're not going to call their atheist friend who's going to say, hey, this stuff just happens. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no meaning to life. They're going to call somebody of spiritual depth. When the student's ready, the teacher will appear. So yeah. you just you just be patient and uh, you wait for an opportunity when they're ready. That's good. And so what I mean, you've kind of talked about a lot of things, I think, that are encouraging um, and that probably motivate you. Is this kind of the same thing that you would say that inspires you? Uh, what after as long as you've been doing this, what can it continues to inspire you to keep doing what you're doing? Well, the fact that, first of all, we we have a, a fair number of people showing up to these events and then we have a lot of people watching online. So we know that people are interested in this material we also have probably about now 600 short Q&A videos on our YouTube channel, the cross Exam yeah. YouTube channel. These are Q&A videos that go anywhere from, say, a minute on average to maybe six or seven minutes tops Q&A videos. Yep. Uh, and people are interested in Q&A because it's short and there's some anticipated conflict. So they'll watch those Q&A videos. Uh, you know, if you send somebody a 40 minute video, they're probably not going to watch it. But if you send them a four minute Q&A video, they'll watch it. And then that's an entree into the many other questions we have on the website Q&A video. So it, it, it sort of draws people in and lets them um, see kind of a real short answer to some of the biggest questions that are asked about Christianity. You can't give a complete answer, obviously, in a couple of minutes, but you can sort of give a doorway to an answer, as John Lennox would say. And, and that's what we try and do. Well, perfect. So I kind of want to jump into some of the, uh, I have some listener questions as well. And this is the first one is, is one listener wrote in and said, is there a conflict between the branches of Christianity? And I think this is interesting because even just this morning I jumped on Twitter and uh, I follow a few atheists on Twitter and one wrote in and said, there are many different versions of Christianity. And when you compare the different beliefs, you find that these are not just different versions of Christianity, but beliefs in different types of God. This problem has dodged, uh, dogged Christians from the earliest days. And so uh, what would you say this idea of are there different brand or what are the conflict between branches of Christianity? Is it different forms of Christianity or how does that work? Well, I just did a uh, podcast as well on why there's so many denominations. And, you know, it's 50 minutes long. If you really want the details, you can listen to that particular podcast. There's also right. a TV show coming up on that same topic that'll air later this year. We're on the NRB network, which is channel 378 on direct TV. It's also streamed live 9 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday nights. Um, and they can see that on our app as well, the cross-examined app. The short answer is this. It's not just Christians who disagree. Everyone disagrees on everything. Why? Because we're human beings and we don't, we're not always rational. We're also emotional and we're volitional beings. So people come up with all sorts of reasons to believe what they believe. And that's even true among Christians. Uh, in fact, in science, people disagree on things. Do you know that right now there are at least eight major theories of macroevolution? Eight. Hmm. And we're told science is objective in all this. No, it isn't. It's only as objective as the scientists because science doesn't say anything scientists do. Yeah. They've come up with – and there's more than this, but these are the eight major ones that are that are being bantered about right now. And none of them work, by the way, <laughs> which is why the Royal <laughs> Society, the top – one of the top scientific affiliations in the world started by Isaac Newton centuries ago, called a meeting back in Dece uh, November of two 2016 
And the meeting was all about why the current theories of macroevolution don't work. We need to come up with a theory that actually works. Now, they had this meeting and they didn't come up with a new theory, but they're admitting the problem. Yeah. So people disagree about everything. But I will say this, that when you look at the three major divisions of Christianity, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholicism and Christianity, they all agree on the essentials. They do have disagreements over some issues. And most of those issues are secondary. They're not primary issues. You know, mode of baptism, popes. Is the church government just people or is there a pope? You know, obviously the Roman Catholics will say it's a pope and the Greeks and the Greek Orthodox and the Protestants will say no pope. Okay. now, is that a significant issue? It could be, but it isn't always. Right. Yeah. Um, They disagree over. Uh, some of them disagree over what really is the difference between justification and sanctification. Catholics tend to, tend to conflate those two. Uh, Protestants say, no, there's justification. That's when you're saved. And then there's sanctification. That's how you become more like Jesus. And the conflation of those two in, by Roman Catholics, in my view, leads to a lot of confusion. But they still agree on the essentials. They did. They agree there's a God. They agree we're sinners. They agree Jesus is necessary for salvation and grace is necessary for salvation, that Jesus is going to come again, that Jesus is God, that there's a Trinity. These things are all agreed upon by all major branches of Christianity. Um, So they agree on the essentials. They disagree over the non-essentials. But that's just that's just a human condition, Ryan. I mean, yeah. people agree on certain things and disagree on other things for all sorts of different reasons. It's not always intellectual. Quite frequently, it's emotional or volitional. They want to believe their tradition. Jesus said, you nullify the word of God on account of your tradition. They want to believe something because it's convenient and it would be inconvenient to believe what the truth really is. There's so many reasons why people agree and disagree over certain things. But even with that said, the essentials of Christianity come through in all three major branches. That's good to say. It's it's they're secondary issues. They're not the same, mm-hmm. not the big things. Now, you you quickly mentioned something I want to come back to in that response is is you talked about that there are eight different theories of evolution, none of which work. Uh, do you have a short response? This is something I talk about a lot on the show, and I'm connected with reasons to believe, and I have their scholars on as well to talk about these sciencey things. But is there something you would say uh, to give a short response to this idea of why evolution doesn't work? Well. Look, it depends on what you mean by evolution. You've got to define your terms. If you want to mean if it means change over time, count me in. We all see it. If it means microevolution, adaptation within a type, count me in. We all see it. But if it means macroevolution, adaptation um, from nothing, molecules to man. Actually, let me not let me throw out the word adaptation for just a second. Let's just say molecules to man without intelligence. Not only do we not see that, I think there's evidence against that. In fact, I'll just give a a number of quick reasons why there appears to be evidence against the idea that we could go from molecules to man without intelligence. First of all, the genetic code itself appears to be the product of intelligence. It's a software code. It's billions of letters long. All the letters are in the right order. You don't see programs writing themselves from natural laws. The second problem, of course, is the fossil record. The major phyla come into existence immediately in the fossil record. It's called the Cambrian explosion. There's no fossil precursors. The third problem is genetic limits to change. Even intelligent breeders can't, say, break the genus of dogs. If intelligence can't break the genus, why do we expect non-intelligent processes to do so? Then you have this problem of irreducible complexity. 
that things appear uh, to be uh, to be in such a working uh, order in living things that if you were to take any one of the parts out, you wouldn't have a functioning system. So you can't modify things gradually. You have to have all the pieces, all the parts there at the same time in working order to have any function at all. And this is true across biological systems. You might be able to explain one or two uh, through some sort of gradual process, but you can't explain them all through a gradual process. All the parts of a working living system need to be in place at the same time to have function. Um, there's epigenetic information, which is the idea that the structure of a cell is just as vital as the DNA of a cell. The, in other words, the hardware of a living thing is just as important as the software as a living thing, and you can't modify the hardware by some sort of mutation. You have to have the cell wall, the cell structure. You have to have all these things in place in order to get new life forms, and you won't get new life forms by just mutating the DNA code. Yeah. You've got to have epigenetic or structural information all in one place at one time. Now, where do I get all this? Most of this comes from the work of Stephen Meyer from the Discovery Institute, discovery.org and other people. Uh, they've got some great books. Stephen's got a great book called Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt. When you read those books, you go, look, there's no way this could have happened by natural forces. There has to be some intelligence involved. Absolutely. And I think to me, one of the, the Cambrian explosion is one of the most powerful arguments of showing uh, just the explosion of, of, of creatures and, and, and phyla right there at the very beginning. And even just last year, I remember showing my students because I teach mostly Chinese students, uh, uh -huh. showing them there was a massive discovery in China in the Hubei province. I think it was the Danube River where they discovered like something like 20,000 fossils of soft body creatures like, like uh, jellyfish and stuff from, from the early parts of the Cambrian explosion that we had mm -hmm. never found before. And so it just, you know, and these scientists even said, it seems like there, this comes from a single creation like event. And I go, right. well, that's because it does. That's right. To me, that's one of the most powerful uh, arguments that I see. And so now you, you mentioned something else and this comes from your book, Stealing from God, but you talked about this, this idea of science doesn't say anything scientists do. You know, you hear that all the time. Well, science says this. Why don't you believe it? Why do you have this saying, scientists don't say anything scientists do? Because all data needs to be gathered and all data needs to be interpreted. And who does that? Science doesn't do that. Scientists do. There would be no science without scientists. In other words, all, all data that we, that we look at, all hypotheses that we make, all interpretations of the data are done in the mind. They're not done in the lab. Science is more done in the mind than in the lab. You have to interpret the data. Who does that? Scientists. Here's the problem. Many scientists are atheists when they become scientists. They don't become scientists. They don't become atheists because they're scientists. They quite often become scientists because they're atheists. And then they bring that atheism into their science. And you say, well, why does that matter? Because Look, there's only two types of causes out there. Logically, a cause can be uh, an intelligent cause or a non-intelligent, we might say, natural cause. We have an intelligent cause, either an intelligent cause or a natural cause. And scientists rule out intelligent causes before they look at the evidence because they are atheists. And so it doesn't matter how much the evidence points toward intelligence they're always going to assume it has to be a natural cause because they ruled out the only other possibility, the intelligent cause. Yeah. So it's it's not a matter of science that says, well, everything has a natural cause. It's a 
philosophical presupposition that drives them to that conclusion. Yeah. Wonderful. And so now kind of continuing on the science thing, another uh, listener uh, wrote in and, and was kind of discussing this idea that apologetics or apologists often make of survival of the fittest. And this, you know, led Hitler to to do what he did. And uh, because, you know, hey, survival of the fittest, hey, he's the fittest, he, he rules, he survives, uh, and the weaker kind of die off. And so he asked the question, does Darwin's theory of survival of the fittest, when taken to a logical extreme, command genocide within a species? And was Hitler's application of it incorrect or correct? Yeah, I would not say it commands it because there's no commands or there's no obligations if atheism's true, right? I mean, yeah. it, it could be the logical outworking that you could have a you could easily justify killing other people if they're they're not made in the image of God, that there's there, there's nothing special about human beings, which is what Darwinism says. We're just overgrown germs, right? We're just molecular machines. Uh, there's no reason to treat any anybody else with any sort of dignity or respect if you don't want to. Uh, so Darwinism, if true, and there is no God, really just leads to nihilism, that you can do whatever you want, as uh, the Russian novelist Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, everything is permitted. Now, what Hitler did do in his book, Mein Kampf, which means my struggle, is he just took Darwinian theory and he basically said, if the weaker races don't want to survive, then they have no right to survive. If they don't want to fight, in other words, then we're just yeah. going to wipe them out because, you see, they're taking resources from the super race and we want to stop that. We want to use those resources to build the super race. And if there is no God, why can you say he's wrong? You can't. You can't say he's wrong because there's no standard beyond humanity. Everything's just a matter of opinion if there's no God. You can't say Hitler was worse than, say, Mother Teresa or Hitler was worse than the Allies. The Nazis were, were, were worse, worse – uh, they had worse values than uh, the Allies did because there's no, there's no good standard out there yep. in, in which to make the judgment. So it's uh, – you know, technically, Darwinism doesn't say anything about right and wrong. It's just if there is no God, there is no right and wrong. That's really the problem. Yeah, yeah so it doesn't necessarily command genocide. But if that's no. what you want to work out, then, hey, then that that's, you yeah, know, you, you can't judge that action. Right. Now, the same person also wrote in and, and is kind of struggling with this this problem of what they see as anti-intellectualism with the church. And uh, they went to a church that had a Q&A, and uh, they were excited for this Q&A because they listened to a lot of apologetics. And you know, the first question was, why do you believe the Bible is true? And the first pastor's answer was, uh, because, you know, the Bible says that the righteous shall live by faith, and therefore I have faith that it's true. And <laughs> the next and the next person said, the next pastor on the panel said, um, well, I know it's true because it's changed lives. And this person thought, well, the Quran has changed lives. The, the Book of Mormon has changed lives. You know, that doesn't necessarily make it true. And so... They're kind of wondering with the struggle of anti-intellectualism in the church is should pastors be required to have some sort of theological apologetic training? Uh, and they were actually curious what your opinion was on that is what level of education should someone who holds a pastor of title uh, have? Well, I obviously think pastors, just like all Christians, ought to be grounded in apologetics. And it's not just my opinion. It's actually said in the Bible that <laughs> we're supposed to always have a reason for the hope that we have. Yeah. Uh, we're supposed to demolish arguments and take every thought captive to Christ. Paul said, I'm set in defense of the gospel. Uh, God, through Isaiah, says, come, let us reason together. I mean, there there's scores of these of these references in the scriptures about 
knowing why you believe what you believe. So, yeah, I think people ought to know why they believe what they believe. And to say to take verses out of context and and to just assume that the Bible is true is not going to be very convincing to somebody who thinks it isn't true. It would be like uh, a Muslim coming up to you and saying, um, you ought to believe the Quran. And you say, why? And you say, because the Quran claims to be the word of God. Well, I don't believe the Quran is the word. Give me some evidence the Quran is the word of God. Yeah. Well, that's that's exactly what it sounds like to a non-Christian when you come up to him and say, why believe the Bible? Well, because the Bible says it's true. Well, so what if it says it's true? It doesn't mean it is. Yeah. Give me some evidence that it is. You know, it's something I said to Mormons. They said, how could you possibly think that the Book of, that the Book of Mormon is false if you haven't read it? You have to read it and pray about it. And I said, do you think the Quran is false? And they said, yeah. I said, have you read it? <laughs> and yeah. they went, oh, that's a really good point. Uh, you, you know, we can know that something is wrong uh, and not have read it. But also, yeah, what kind of good reasons do we have to give them? And so... Uh, talking about reason, um, I was at a conference this weekend. John Lennox was there speaking, and someone asked John Lennox, uh, what is uh, the best argument for atheism? And his response is, there is no good argument for atheism because an argument presupposes reason, and you don't get reason within an atheistic worldview. And so I know you talk about this in your book, Stealing from God. Uh, why do you say that, uh, that atheists steal reason from God in order to make arguments against them? Why can you not get reason within atheism? Yeah, well, and, and there's no way I'm ever disagreeing with John Lennox. I just love the guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's absolutely <laughs> right on that matter uh, because, look, if we're talking about the kind of atheism that is very prevalent today, which is materialism, how do you have reason if we're just molecular machines? I mean, there, there are two problems here for the atheist. Number one, they can't ground the laws of logic and the immaterial laws that we use to even think. Secondly, if we're completely governed by the laws of physics, we're nothing but molecular machines, we're nothing but moist robots, then why should we believe anything we think, including the thought that atheism is true? Because we didn't reason to that conclusion. The laws of physics drove us to that conclusion. So why should we believe it's true? In other words, the ideology of materialism makes reason impossible. It could be true. Materialism could be true. There's just no way of knowing it, because in order to know it's true, you have to assume it's false so you can follow the evidence where it leads. You have to assume you're a free will being who isn't completely governed by the laws of physics and can ascertain the evidence clearly. And your senses can can discover truths about the real world and then draw true conclusions about the real world. That doesn't work if materialism is true. It only works if some sort of realism is true, which is what theists believe. All right, so we have about two minutes left, or less than that, about a minute and a half. So I, you know, I was also hanging out with Bobby Conway this weekend, the One Minute Apologist, and so we're going to go one minute on this one. Uh, if you were uh, had to make the case of, for Christianity to someone very quickly in, in one minute, uh, how would you do that? Well, it depends on where they are. You know, they already believe in God. Well, I won't start there then. If they already, believe, if they don't believe in God or they don't believe in truth, then I'm going to back up all the way to the beginning. The four points that. Um, that I normally make on a college campus or the four questions I try to answer is, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament telling the truth about the resurrection? And the reason the resurrection is so important is because if Jesus literally rose from the dead, then Christianity is true. If he didn't rise from the dead, it's not true. So everything hinges on the resurrection. So I'll deal with the questions of truth. You know, if they say there's no truth, I'm going to say, is that true? Is it true there's no truth? You know, it's self-defeating <laughs> to say there's no truth. So yeah. relativism and postmodernism are out. Does God exist? 
There are three arguments I talk about, the beginning of the universe, the design of the universe, and the design of life, and objective moral laws and obligations. And you can show, I think, quite quite easily that there, there was a beginning to the universe. Space, matter, and time had a beginning. If that's the case, whatever created space, matter, and time can't be made of space, matter, and time. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create – also intelligent to have the mind to make a choice. Now, I always ask people, when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, who do you think of? Well, that would be God. You say, well, how do you know it's the Christian God? We don't yet. We don't know, we don't know who Jesus is. But if we keep doing the research, we're going to realize that the same being that walked out of the tomb 1,986 years ago is the same being in whose divine nature created the universe out of nothing. Uh, and I, anyway, I go through those three arguments to show that God exists. Then are miracles possible? That's easy because if Genesis one, one is true, God created the universe out of nothing. Then every other miracle claim in the new, in the, in the Bible is at least possible. I mean, if yeah. God exists, miracles are possible. And if Genesis one, one is true, as even the atheists are admitting in the sense that there was a beginning to the universe, then it is possible that that God rose Jesus from the dead. And then we give evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead, that the New Testament writers never would have invented uh, the resurrection story. They were all Jews, all with the exception of Luke. They had no motive to make that up. So if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity's true. That's the short answer. Perfect, Frank. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining me this morning. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Thanks for doing the podcast. It's important. Thank you all so much for listening. Check out crossexamine.org for more information. Sip coffee? Think deeply. This is Coffee House Questions with Ryan Pauly. Won't hesitate to follow Your love will guide my way